Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, friends. This is Matthias Roberts, and you're listening to Queerology, a podcast on belief and being. This is episode 97. The more you know about somebody, the more what they do makes sense or what they've done makes sense it doesn't mean it was good it doesn't mean it was right it doesn't mean it didn't cause harm nadia boltz weber is an ordained lutheran pastor founder of house for all sinners and saints in denver colorado and the author of three new york times best-selling memoirs Pastrix, The Cranky, Beautiful Faith of a Sinner and Saint, Accidental Saints, Finding God in All the Wrong People, and most recently, Shameless, A Sexual Reformation. Nadia writes and speaks about personal failings, recovery, grace, faith, and really whatever the hell she wants to. (laughs) That's copied directly from her website. (laughs) She always sits in the corner with the other weirdos. I'm so excited to have Nadia on the podcast today. My guess is that the majority of you who listen to this show are already quite familiar with Nadia's work. If not, you're in for a huge treat. Every single time I sit down with Nadia, I have this sense that she is just one of the most real people out there. You know, there's those people who are like, are celebrities who there's like a huge disconnect between who they are publicly and and who they are privately. And that's not Nadia. She is genuine and authentic. She's one of those people who is who she is wherever she goes. And and that's something I, I deeply appreciate about her. We recorded this episode before all of the the COVID quarantine stay-at-home things went into effect, before we really even knew that COVID was coming. So this is like a jump back into blissful time. Since we've recorded this, Nadia has started a podcast herself that just released about two weeks ago called The Confessional, and it is absolutely incredible. So if you listen to this and think, hey, I want more of Nadia, I would highly recommend jumping over and and picking up that podcast. It's, It's produced by The Moth, and it is just stunningly beautiful. Nadia also has an online publication called The Corners, which you can subscribe to via her website, which is weekly-ish. I, I get it. She she writes fairly often. is super encouraging and, and lovely. If you can't tell, I'm a Nadia fanboy. It's such a treat to have her on the show today. And a quick note, this episode was chosen to release today by the Queerology Active Listeners. I put out a poll on the Active Listeners Facebook page of who people wanted to hear from what episode they wanted to release, and people voted and chose Nadia. So if you want to get in on all the fun that we have going on over on the Queerology Active Listeners Facebook page, all you need to do is become a patron of Queerology at any level. To do that, go to patreon.com slash Matthias Roberts. Choose a level that you want to give, and you'll get the details on, on how to join the Active Listeners Facebook page right away. We're having a lot of fun over there. That's patreon.com slash Matthias Roberts. And just a quick note before we dive in, 
When we were recording this, and, and you'll notice in the episode, Nadia and I talk about idealization, and then I use the word disillusionment when we have that conversation. My brain during this recording completely forgot a word and substituted the word disillusionment. I actually meant devaluation, which there's a subtle but pretty significant difference between those two. So anytime you hear me use the word disillusionment in this episode, just make the mental switch to devaluation because that's what I actually meant to say. Let's go ahead and dive in. Nadia, hi, welcome. Hey. I'm so excited to have you today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. So to start, I'll ask you the question I ask everyone. How do you identify and how would you say that your faith has helped form that identity? I identify, I don't know, do you mean in terms of like gender and sexual orientation identity? Yeah. So, I mean, people take that question and go so many different directions with uh-huh, it. So, uh-huh. Okay, so. no. Okay, so it's purposefully just identity. How do you identify? <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah. I identify as a lot of things. I'm definitely a cisgender female. I identify as a Lutheran theologian and as a writer and as a mom and as a lover, and as a person in recovery, a recovering alcoholic, and as somebody who has, uh, for ever since I was 16 years old, been around and a part of and adjacent to the queer community. I don't really, I don't really like, I've never really identified as a bisexual. I mean, I had a lot of relationships with women early on when I was younger, and have and just sort of have certain types of people I find attractive, and that sometimes they're female, sometimes they're male. But uh, but my primary relationships have been with men. So, but I don't. That's not something that's like an identifier to me. I've never like when people just say I'm straight. I'm like, ah, oh, I don't know. My ex girlfriends probably wouldn't agree with that. I guess I don't know. <laughs> But at the same time, I because I've had no, I am a completely privileged person in terms of the fact that I have primarily been in heterosexual relationships. I feel like queer or even bisexual is not a term I feel comfortable taking on because generally the people who take those terms on have experienced oppression because of them in a way I haven't. So it feels disingenuous. Do you know what I'm saying? So it's, I don't I think know. so. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, that, and that's a conversation that we've we've had on this podcast several times with several different folks who kind of sit in that weird in between, right? Where, where queer or bi doesn't quite feel comfortable because of that the oppression question, and yet straight certainly isn't it either. Also, I'm just very sensitive to competitive marginalization and and how <laughs> how that's a sort of contact sport right now. And so I just sort of veer away from anything that starts to feel like that for myself. I mean, it's where we start running into the confines of what labels can do for us and how they can be helpful, but also not at all. Right. Yeah. So for me, I just tend to not do it. <laughs> but I've been part of the, I mean, I've just been sort of lived among queerness since I was a teenager. So in terms of who my friends are and who I spent time with, and certainly my church, I mean, House for All Sinners and Saints started with eight people, four of whom were queer. 
And so it's always been the church that I've been a part of and the people I've been around. So, And you mentioned your church. Like, I'm curious what your faith journey has been like. I mean, kind of intersecting with these identities and Tell me more about that. Well, I was raised in the Church of Christ, which, you know, I describe as Baptist plus, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I mean, lots and lots of stuff around gender with that in terms of uh, women weren't allowed certainly to ever preach, but also couldn't be elders, couldn't be deacons, could not be ushers, could not teach Sunday school after kids were 12 years old because a a 12-year-old boy had more spiritual authority in the church than a grown woman did. I mean, it was that extreme. I never heard a woman pray out loud in a Christian worship service until I was 27 years old. So to be a girl who was smart and a natural leader but grew up in that context just caused a lot of dissonance. So eventually I left, but I didn't really know there were other forms of Christianity. I just knew I hated that one, and that one hated me. That's how it felt. But I never stopped believing in God. I, I certainly had an affinity for Jesus that during those 10 years I couldn't have anything to do with his church. <laughs> so for some reason I never managed to be an atheist. So. That's why I always love that Frank Schaefer quote from his Fresh Air interview and Terry Gross, because, you know, Francis Schaefer was his dad and had this crazy, crazy upbringing. And she goes, but you're still Christian after all that and leaving it and writing books about it and all that stuff. Like, you still have faith. And he had converted at that point to orthodoxy. And he goes, yeah. And she goes, well, tell me, like, why are you still in it? And he goes, look, all I know is that if what I wanted more than anything in the world was to be an atheist. The only thing I could think to do is to just pray to God to make me one. (laughs) And I have hated Frank Schaefer ever since then for saying this thing that I wish I had said. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, That's amazing. Yeah, but that that was my experience. And so it wasn't until I sort of discovered like the Lutheran church and their social justice angle and started seeing women in leadership and all of that, that I sort of went, oh, maybe there's a place for me in the church and sort of, you know, went into seminary and whatnot. But the thing is, is, um, you know, being raised like that, there's the thing I say a lot is like, you can take the girl out of fundamentalism, but it's much harder to take the fundamentalism out of the girl. And so I spent those 10 years, I was away from the church. I did not move very far away from the kind of dualistic thinking that they taught me to have. I just changed the labels of the categories. So I still thought, you know, I got very involved in leftist politics and pretty extreme. And uh, it was still us and them, right and wrong. Either you had this pure ideology or you were the enemy. So I realized I didn't really feel free from the wounds of my fundamentalist upbringing until... I was able to look back on that upbringing and not view it dualistically. So when I was able to go, there were beautiful things about being raised in a church like that. Like there were some good things. And saying that didn't feel like a betrayal of the part of me that was hurt by the bad things. That's when I was free. So now I'm able to say, look, we were raised in a community that cared about each other. Like, I, we went to church three times a week, and then we had devotionals and Bible studies at our house. But our lives were very closely intertwined with the lives of other people for years. And 
I feel like, and there was so much laughter, and there was singing, and there was prayer, and there, I mean, faith, there was an inflection of faith in every aspect of our lives. And even though there are things that are so deeply problematic about that upbringing, there's part of me that's tried to recreate the good parts ever since I left it, and I've rarely found it. I feel like that yearning, in in a sense, because I, I resonate with with that kind of fundamentalism part of your story, right? Like I, I grew up in those kind of communities too, and like the thing that they do so well, or a lot of the communities anyway, is that community, right? And how hard it is to find that almost anywhere else. <laughs> I know. Well, you know, I do think about that a lot in the sense of the type of commitment that people have when the stakes are you're either saved or you're lost. The type of commitment they have in terms of their lives, in terms of their money, when it's, hey, we know God's will and you can either live it or not live it, but those are the stakes here, right? There's such a deeper level of commitment. And I even even wonder about like, if it's similar in terms of conservative politics and liberal politics, you know, it's like the Republican Party has this, it seems like a fairly clear message, clear platform. There's a deep level of commitment. People give a lot of money. The Democratic Party, it feels like, cares about all the things, (laughs) every single subgroup of everything you can imagine. They're like, is equally important as everything else. Do you know what I'm saying? And then There's just not the same level of commitment, the same level of money. And I wonder if there's a correlation between that and and what we see in terms of conservative or progressive uh, Christianity as well. It's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I often think about how well a common enemy unites, right? And I think for me growing up, the common enemy was very clear, right? (laughs) Versus now in these other worlds where like there is an enemy but it's it's also like everyone's the enemy because none of us can get it right and it's so easy to slip up and become the enemy and then get back into good say tell me more about what you're saying so i'm a therapist and and we talk a lot about like defense mechanisms and this idea that idealism is a defense mechanism that always comes with dis um disillusionment I have never heard idealism called a defense mechanism. That's blowing my mind. Oh my gosh, yeah, yeah. So. What? <laughs> well, look, because I'm super interested in idealism because I am 100% not an idealist. And so when I see it in people, I think, what is that? You know, and part of it's like I have what's called a really low anthropology because I'm a Lutheran. Like I have a fairly low opinion of both myself and every other human being in terms of we all have such a capacity to be shitty to each other, to ourselves, to the planet. Nobody's exempt from this. Yeah. So when people are idealists, I think, wow, what need is that filling in them? Because A, it doesn't feel rooted in reality. B, it always sets you up to be disappointed. And now you get to be in that role of the sort of aggrieved person (laughs) and then see the other thing is idealism is easily exploitable by other people like we just watched wild wild country again that netflix i watched it like a second time and that was the thing i found sad 
was that the people who were involved in Rajneeshpuram, like who were the, the just generic Rajneeshis, they were idealists, right? They were like, we want to be in a community where everyone works hard, where everyone's accepted, where we can build something beautiful, where we can be about meditation and peace, where we aren't jealous. Like, it was idealism. And like, it was kind of beautiful that they, and to a large extent, if you really listen closely, you hear them say, and we did it. Like, this thing we built was that. I'd never, the lawyer in that was so interesting to me. Because he teared up saying, I never felt so fully loved and accepted in my life as when I was a part of that. And who the fuck doesn't want that, right? And so there's this idealism, but there was nothing to check it in terms of the leaders. And then you have that Sheila character, and holy shit, if she's not an Enneagram who's completely unfucking checked <laughs> I mean, I was looking at this with like through my fingers, my hand over my face going, oh my God, had I not been somebody who's in recovery and done a little personal work, I would have gotten the guns at that point too. (laughs) Did you know what I mean? But it was the idealism of people, which can be kind of beautiful too. And yet charismatic leaders, this is why, look, in Life Together, Bonhoeffer says, be very skeptical of charismatic leaders. And this is why because of how easily exploited people's desires for acceptance and love and community and beautiful things that are inflected with the gospel. People want that, and that is easily exploited. Right. Because, I I mean, I think in idealism, we're projecting everything good onto a person, everything that we want to be good about a person in a person— and I mean, how quickly that can shift, right? Sometimes we can stay in that idealized state forever and, and live in it, but like almost always on the heels is is disillusionment. I mean, I, th- I think I think about Twitter today, like that that's a lot of that kind of back and forth, at least in my mind, how I make sense of it, of idealism moving to disillusionment and how it can happen you know, just like that. But how neither are totally accurate. You know? Exactly. (laughs) Like, this is why I'm like, look, nobody's ever only just one thing. And the best, most magnificent leader in the world is going to sometimes do things that are selfish, that is still going to have moments where they're not entirely honest. Why the fuck would we ever expect that to not be the case? Like, we do ourselves and our communities a disservice when we feel like we have to think of our leaders that way. Hey, I'm interrupting because I want to tell you about my new book, Beyond Shame. Whether you grew up in the repressive purity culture of evangelical Christianity or not, all of us have been taught in subtle and not-so-subtle ways that sex and sexuality, outside of very specific contexts, is immoral and taboo. That's why I wrote Beyond Shame, creating a healthy sex life on your own terms. In Beyond Shame, I help you pinpoint the coping mechanisms you use to manage shame. Then we uncover the lies you've been told about sex and sexuality and give you a framework for helping you move beyond it. Stop living in shame and fear and move into a life of confidence and flourishing. 
Sound like something you want? Pick up a copy of Beyond Shame today wherever you buy books. And remember, most local bookstores are shipping faster than the big online stores right now. When you're done with it, shoot me a note. I can't wait to hear what you think. Okay, let's get back to Nadia. You mentioned growing up in this world of, of kind of like a very black and white thinking, which, I mean, idealism fits into that, right? I mean, I, I'd be curious, as you have gone on this journey then to kind of remove this dualism, to be able to look back. I mean, I, I think, I don't know if Rob Bell is the first one to talk about this, but he talks about like transcend and include, like that work to include our past while we move move beyond it. How have you learned to do that? I just think it's the only path for like maturity, I guess. (laughs) I mean, that dualistic place, the us and them right and wrong, that, you know, foaming at the mouth thing feels like a, I don't want to sound dismissive. If I'm being dismissive, I'm being dismissive of myself when I say it's fine when you're young. (laughs) It's appropriate when you're young, right? But I just think when you sort of acquire more different experiences, you're exposed to different kinds of people, different kinds of ideas. When you've fallen on your ass sufficiently enough, you know, when all of these things happen, when your best efforts fail you, when other people offer you grace when you didn't deserve it, like when these things pile up, I don't know what else you do as a result but go, oh, shit, the more I learn, the the less I... No, you know, I mean, I know so much less than I used to. And I was so certain then, you know, it's just a process I've been in. It's not a, it's not a virtue I, I was striving for, if that makes sense. That does make sense. I mean, I, I feel like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like a lot of your work recently has been around this idea of compassion, of dabbling or experimenting with compassion. And I mean, in my mind those things kind of are tied together in a way like this, this removing of dualism and compassion. I don't know that they can necessarily be separated. I'm curious what you, what you think about that. No, I think it's a Mobius strip because I just realized like the more, you know, about somebody, the more what they do makes sense or what they've done makes sense. It doesn't mean it was good. It doesn't mean it was right. It doesn't mean it didn't cause harm, but at least you go, Oh shit. Okay. I get it. I see why you do it. And you can have compassion for how many things contribute to our actions, you know? I mean, this is why I struggle with the idea of free will as it's sort of presented often, because there's so many things that determine how I view the world and myself and what thoughts I have and what actions I take that aren't just my will. And it feels foolish to say, oh, it's all just individual, just personal accountability, personal choices. Like there's so much, I mean, part of it's like where I do this volunteer work in the prison, in this women's prison. And, you know, you look at the stories of these women and what number of them come from home, parents that were alcoholic or drug addicted, huge percentage. How many experienced some kind of sexual or physical abuse in their life, huge percentage, right? And you go, there are so many factors that go into somebody taking an action that might not be legal, but for them felt like survival. And yet all we do is boil it down to, hey, you broke the law, got to be punished, you know? Well, 
geez, what, what about all the factors that go into that, you know? So I guess, I mean, part of it is my curiosity about why do we need to cancel people? What is the need in me that is filled when I get to express outrage about somebody else? I have a lot of curiosity about that. (laughs) Because if somebody stumbles, makes a mistake, says the wrong thing, I am so much more likely to point the finger and say, how dare you? Like, that's problematic, you know, if I secretly struggle with the same thing, right? Like, if I, this, my example is always that, you know, newscaster Brian Williams, who, I love this term, fell from grace. Why? It wasn't because he falsified a news account. He exaggerated a personal story, <laughs> and why did our whole like country point the finger, turn on him, say, like, you, how dare you? Is because every last fucking one of us has exaggerated a personal story. And when we do it, it creates this icky feeling in us. And those icky feelings build up eventually, and we have to do something with them. And so we just wait till someone comes along that we get to put all of our... Because, see, if I'm not quite as bad at the thing you're really bad at, I'm fucking grateful you came along. It's a relief. So then we get to put all of our icky shit onto them and point the finger and say, how dare you? And then we get to cancel them or destroy their career or cast them out of the village or kill them. And there's the theological term for that is scapegoating. And, and it happens all the time. And so when I was at the Nantucket Project and they said, would you have a conversation on stage with Lance Armstrong? And I said, yeah, that day I was going to be doing the conversation. It was like the final event of the evening. Everyone was going to be there. All day people were like, hey, go get them. Like, don't let them off easy. And I thought, what the fuck is that? What is that in us? Why? I'm like, oh my God, did Lance Armstrong do something to you personally? No, he didn't do anything to me personally. It was, first of all, idealism about, hey, here's this figure and he represents all this stuff to us and blah, blah, blah. And we get to sort of decide he's the real problem, you know, and he gets to, if I I never have to look at taking an unfair advantage because now he gets to carry all of it for us. And it builds social cohesion because we all get agree on who the problem is and that it's not us. And then it just, it sort of helps with our anxiety collectively to do this to each other. And I just, once you start seeing it, it's hard to unsee it. And then it's constantly, every time I have a reaction like that, I have to go, what is it in me that's reacting that way? What need is it filling? That's not an easy question to ask of ourselves, I mean, I, I know how easily it is for me to get caught up in just almost like the sheer delight of outrage and, and being against someone. Like, it really does feel good. Mm, yes. Yes, it does. But also, live by the call out, die by the call out. When's it my turn? You know what I right. mean? That's why a friend of mine, an Episcopal priest in New York, said, said um, we're, we're all three bad days away from being an internet scandal, and most of us are already on day two, right? So. <laughs> yeah. 
I, I mean, it's so true. I, I mean, I think about like, I mean, you're talking about this kind of theological construct of scapegoating. I mean, which of course I am, and I would imagine people who are familiar with this idea are, are thinking of, you know, Gerard and and his philosophical ideas around scapegoating. I mean, what, what he found in his philosophy was that Christianity was one of the very few, if not the only stories that seemed to subvert that in the atonement of Jesus on the cross. I would be curious if you could unpack that a little bit of like even how our faith then leads us into this sense of this isn't the solution. Like there's something different that is available and possible for us. Yeah, and it's easier when that other thing is the core of our religious tradition, the core of it, right? It's not just here's the ethic of the day. It's not just, you know, here's the um, psychological virtue we can all sort of put on. It's saying, oh, no, this is actually the foundation of this entire thing that we claim to be a part of. This idea that, I mean, I'm reading this book, Dominion, by Tom Holland, which is, he's not Christian, and yet he wrote this book about sort of like the whole, it's a history of how Christianity has influenced culture, but like he he's basically saying like you have to understand how completely radical it was in the midst of the Roman Empire to have a growing movement where people said a convicted and you know killed and convicted and assassinated criminal is the god of the universe, right? Like it goes against absolutely every notion of Caesar and of power and of empire. And somehow this complete counter-narrative to the dominant narrative what became, grew and grew and grew. And in a lot of ways, it made no sense. And yet it makes all the sense in the world because our own egos and our own, like, here's what will make me feel better has never, ever been what was actually good for me in my whole life. Of course, if somebody, like, is shitty to me online, what I think will make me feel better is a counterattack. And sometimes I do that, you know, but it, in the end, it's just empty fucking calories. It's not helping me. And so the fact is, we have this whole spiritual tradition that says, look, there is this other way of being in the world that will bring about wholeness, will bring about flourishing, and it's super counterintuitive. And it's not what you think will make you feel better. And yet it's the thing that saves us. Oh, it's powerful stuff. I, I feel like anytime we start getting into these conversations, I just start getting chills. <laughs> this shit is real. This is why I'm still in the game. You think it's because I'm devoted to the institution of the church? Fuck no. No, it's because I'm desperate for that kind of mercy. Like, I know it's the only thing that saves me. It's never my righteousness, you know. So I just haven't, I, there's nothing else I find as compelling. And it's just, it's just the most true thing I've ever heard in my life. And it just sounds outrageous. And yet, it's real. It's interesting. We've been talking about idealism and, and disillusionment, and and I mean, I often see you as a pastor for the folks who are disillusioned, right? Especially folks who are disillusioned by the church, and a lot of those folks, myself included, are part of this queerology community, right? We are folks who have been hurt and who 
there's something in faith that we're like, I'm so intrigued by this, but also there's so much pain. I mean, as someone who has who works in these arenas and who I know has has experienced this in your own life, I, you know, I don't know what my question is in that, but where do we find hope? <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, I think that's an excellent question because look, I feel pretty clear about it actually, and that is because of how many stories like yours I have the privilege to be privy to. And people tell me there, I was raised in the church, but this thing happened and I had to leave. I have a a community on Substack called The Corners and I posted, yesterday I posted a question, were you raised religious and are you part of a community now? And there are almost and I posted it yesterday, there's almost a thousand responses. And they're incredible. It takes hours to read them, but it's pretty astounding to read because you just see so many similar patterns. Here's the thing. that The thing I was talking about a few minutes ago about here's the core of what this whole thing is about, that is what a lot of us just call the gospel. And what I have found is people don't ever leave the church. I've collected thousands of these stories People don't leave the church or Christianity because they stopped believing in the gospel. People leave the church because they believe in the gospel so much that they can't stomach being part of an institution or a community that says it's about it and so clearly isn't. That's different. And so subsequently, the hope I find is in how many people still believe in Jesus even after the institution has fucked us so much. Like, that we are somehow able to separate the institution from the gospel. The fact that people still believe in it and still are reaching for the hem of the garment, even like the church hasn't even, hasn't fucked it up so much that nobody's doing that. That's incredible to me. I actually find hope in that. So my hope is, what's the thing within us that causes us to still reach And what does the hem of the garment represent? That's the core of the hope, not the other stuff. And so, look, I'm part of mainline Protestantism as a Lutheran pastor. And I don't know if you've read the news. It's not doing great. (laughs) People aren't – there are some churches that are thriving for sure. There are some congregations that are beautiful, thriving. But for the most part – it's a, such an aging demographic that you projected out 20 years, most of the churches are closed, right? So I just, to me, it, all of this is not about Constantinian Christianity. It's not about the fact that I think that the church bought into a set of values it never had any business buying into in the first place in terms of prestige and property and power And so if we're losing prestige and property and power, I'm not crying over that. That's not what it was about in the first place. So if we, if our camps close and our colleges and our congregations and our offices and all that shit, if all the buildings become condos, I remain unworried about the church because that's just not what it's ever been to me. Because I think that no matter what happens, I believe that people will still reach for the hem of the garment. I think people will gather 
even if it's in their homes or in parking garages or inside trailers, they will gather in the name of the triune God and they'll talk about the night Jesus was betrayed when he you know, gathered with his friends and they'll lift up bread and say, it's for forgiveness of sins, it's the body of Christ, it's for you, my friends, and that they will do that forever. That's not going to stop happening. It just won't. And so, therefore, I'm unworried about the sort of the church. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think that leads us into, I mean, this is a conversation that has been happening for forever that church can look very different from a from a building but i'm interested in this community element of it of gathering with friends gathering in living rooms i mean i know from you like you have a very close community of friends in the hedge like you talk about it this in interviews and that like group of people that do life with and when when we talk about that kind of yearning for community from fundamentalism I think what I'm wondering is, is what value <laughs> do maybe friendships and, and close community that, that we wouldn't necessarily call church, right? Is there value in that? Can that be church? It's all I have right now. I spent 10 years of my life pouring myself into starting a church I could stomach showing up to. And then, you know, I've been gone for almost two years, a year and a half, almost two years. And... I don't have my own congregation. You know, I don't have, I'm not a member of a church right now. I preach locally about once a month, either in the prison or at the cathedral or whatever, but I don't have that. I don't have the thing I grew up with. I don't have it. But I do, I am on the phone every day of my life with my friends who live other places. So I only have a couple close friends in Denver, and then all my close friends live everywhere else. And so I put a premium on those relationships. So I'm either, doing a Marco Polo or on the phone or texting my friends every day of my life. So that to me has become really critical. But is it the same as what I grew up with? No. And I, I, I think I will long, I will long for that, that sense of community the rest of my life, maybe, you know. I wish I could show up somewhere locally. The other thing, and this is just particular to me, is you know, I, when I do visit churches locally and I'm, like, trying to find a place, you know, it's like a room that seats 350 people and there's 30 people over 70 scattered throughout the room, not even sitting together. And then after the liturgy's over, the deacon wants to take a selfie with me. Yeah, that, that weird, that hard tension between the sense of what we yearn for and, and finding it in, in other areas. And it's not the same, but it can fulfill and I mean I, I know experience that in my life in leaving leaving church and you know being the, the queerness and trying to find community and I think all I'm trying to say in that is like I resonate with that and and I would imagine many people who are listening to this resonate with that both the yearning and the goodness and, and all the, the complicated messy stuff in the midst thank you so much for doing this really appreciate it how can people find your work? Oh, you know, I'm on like Instagram and Twitter. I have a very pretty new website that just came out a couple of days ago, NadiaBoltzWeber.com. Don't go to NadiaBoltzWeber.com because this guy who hates me bought that URL and it's literally just a website devoted to writing shit about me. <laughs> <laughs> 
so that feels good. And then I the corners, which I talked about, is on Substack. So you, anybody can just um, sign up for a free newsletter from the corners. But if you want to kind of get more engaged and involved, there's paid subscriptions. But also... Anywhere you see me talk about Substack, you can see uh, an email address. Anybody who emails that address gets a free subscription if you need it. So we've given away hundreds of them, so we don't want it to be a barrier. So it's sort of been a way for me to sustain my work and to help people engage with, with me and with each other and help support me. But also we want it available to absolutely anybody who wants to be a part of it. So no problem there. So that's called The Corners on Substack. Well, thank you. Thank yeah. you, thank you. Well, thank you for the work you do. I mean, I I imagine you have no idea the impact and the healing that it brings so many people, but I know it does, so I'm glad you're doing what you do, too. You can find Nadia on Twitter and Instagram. On Twitter, she's at Sarcastic Luther. On Instagram, she's at Sarcastic Lutheran. Luther and Lutheran. Pick up a copy of her new book, Shameless, wherever you buy books, and be sure to check out her new podcast, The Confessional, wherever you get podcasts. Queerology is on Twitter and Instagram at QueerologyPod, or you can tweet me directly at Matthias Roberts. Queerology is produced with the support from its active listeners. To find out how you can become an active listener, head over to patreon.com slash Matthias Roberts. Another really easy way to support Queerology is by leaving a rating and a review. Do that right in your podcast app or head to MatthiasRoberts.com slash review and it'll take you right there. As always, I'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas of what you want to hear on the show or just want to say hi, reach out. I'll get back to you. And until next time, y'all. Bye! Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.